How are you this morning? Good. Three goods and a lot of sleepy people. I'm with Joey, man. All right. Would you turn to Acts chapter 17? We're going to continue on in the book of Acts in our series called The Church. And so we're looking at really what, as the church began, as Jesus commissioned his people to be the church, not a building, but a people, a community, a specific community of people, a, a people with a message, a community of people that would live differently, act differently, be different. As Jesus commissioned that, as he ascended back to heaven, what did he, what did he call us to be? Really, that's the question we're asking. And we, we worked through the first 15 chapters of Acts. We took a little break for summer. We just did a small series on sharing Christ with others, just talking about how to naturally share Jesus with other people. We're picking this back up, week two, back into Acts. We're in Acts 17. If you would, would you stand with me? I want to read this passage. I want to read a short part of what we're looking at today. This is Paul in the city of Athens. As he begins to speak to the Athenian people, here's what he said. This is the word of the Lord, church. Starting in verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Generations Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have given us your word. You have left us not, not without anything to lead and guide us, but you have given us your word. You have superintended it, guarded it, protected it, that it might be everything we need to get through this life. Jesus, you have called us to be a people called your church. Yes, we're a local church, Jesus. We're a local representation of your body but we are called to be your people. We're called to be a people that engage with the people around us. And we're called to do that in, in ways that you have called us to, with words that you have called us to, with, with hearts and attitudes that you have called us to, to, to emulate in you. Jesus, that we would imitate you, that we would bring you to the community, the culture, the cities, the neighborhoods, the communities we live in. Jesus, help us to be what you have called us to be, which is your church. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, if you are new here, if, you, if you're our guest today, maybe for the first time, I'll give you a couple things on the app. If you downloaded the app, all the notes are in there. So all the notes that we put on the screen today, like this one, we're going to read in just a second. All those are in there. There's a Bible in there that you can turn to if you don't have a Bible. And if you'd like a paper Bible, if you slip your hand up, one of our ushers will bring you one. They would love to do that. We've got that for you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one, that you would have a Bible. I say that thing about the app and the notes for this. If you're in a community group or if you're joining a community group, they're starting this week, as Pastor Joey said. The notes that I give today, we're going to use those for community group. We're going to take those application points, especially the seven at the end, 
And we're going to unpack those as we get into community group. We'll have some other questions, but we're going to take those and lean into them a little more. And so as a starting point, just kind of a main idea today, it says this, the church is called to engage the culture we live in. We are responsible for how we share Christ with others. We cannot control the outcome. We were in a series early this year in Proverbs, right? Proverbs was this year. Is that correct? I'm glad you remembered as well as I do. Okay, good. So uh, we did one message on speech, right? On our speech, that we're accountable for our speech. Is it kind of coming back to memory? Yes. Lucky says yes. That must make it true. All right. That we're accountable for our speech. And then in essence, we can cause things in other people by our speech, and we're accountable for that outcome. Does that make sense? I can say things in such a way, they might be true, but they cause a response in you. I say that in a positive way or in a negative way. I'm responsible for the message. I'm responsible for the way I convey the message. That's probably a better way to say that. See, the message is, well, it's Jesus. Right? The message is the gospel. I'm responsible for how I share that with others. I can't control their response, but I can be responsible for how I convey the message. So if we're called to engage culture, then we have to be given some values in how we engage culture. Right? We, we can't just go out there. And I don't, I, don't, I don't single out any Christian groups almost ever. Right? There is one uh, that I tend to call out, and they're the the black and yellow banner people that, that are around and they lead with like, you're going to hell and they just lead with some really, just some really raw things, right? Now, are they engaging the culture? Kind of, right? Are they, are they, do they have a message of the gospel? Kind of, right? Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt, say yes. Are they adhering to some kind of value that they see in Jesus or in Paul? Probably not. So as we're called to engage the culture, we're responsible for how we do it. That's what we want to look at in Acts chapter 17. So if you would, Acts 17, verse 1, it says this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here we are. We're picking up middle of the story, right? We're about into the the, kind of the two-third mark of the book, if you will. And we're following a man named Paul. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible at all, you've probably still heard of Paul. Paul's one of the most prominent first century figures right up there. There's Jesus and some Roman leaders and Paul. Paul changed the landscape of the first century. He planted churches. He went out and and, uh, just was an amazing Christian leader and, and saw a lot of cultural change in his day through the gospel taking root in cities, both Jewish and non Jewish. So Paul is moving around. He went out on his first plant, uh, church planting journey, Acts 13 and 14. He goes out in this kind of C-shaped kind of journey as he goes out. And then rather than going right across the water back to where it's Antioch, where he had left, he goes back through that same C-shape route. But in other words, back the long way, back the way he came. And he did so that he could meet again with the churches and the Christians and the cities that he had already engaged in. Well, now there's been that Jerusalem council that we looked at in Acts 15, and then last week, and, and we, we had this verse at the end of Acts 15. It says this, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Brothers there means this, the community of faith, men and women alike. It's just like that mankind is the generic term. But when he says brothers, he's saying those who have believed in Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back through the cities that we've already gone to, 
and we're going to go back and see how they're doing. Now, Paul has a specific way he engages the community. So there's the Christians he's going to go check on, if you will, right? And just beginning to be called Christians at this moment in the Bible. It's a very unfamiliar term, but it's just followers of Jesus. And when he would go into those cities, he would also engage the non-Christian, for lack of better terms, culture. Verse 2. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul would go into these cities. He would visit the brothers, visit the church, visit the believers. He would see them, and then he would, on the Sabbath, which is a Jewish practice, we come to church on Sundays, they go to church on Saturday evenings, right? So on the Sabbath, they would go in, and Paul would go there, and he would, it says, reason with them from the Scriptures. So this is his, like, cultural engagement strategy, or his missional strategy, if you will. He would go to the synagogues. Now, the reason he would do that is he was, before he became a follower of Jesus, he was a profound Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee, a leader of leaders, and a well-known Jewish Pharisee. So here's what he would do. This is his wheelhouse, right? He is a guy who knows what you and I would call the Old Testament, what a Jewish man or woman or Christian even in this day would just call the Bible, right? That's all they had. We're, we're writing, if you will, we're living and reading what takes place and becomes the New Testament. But he's a scholar. He's an Old Testament scholar. So he would go into the synagogues, and because of his status as a religious leader, as a Jewish leader, for the most part, they would invite him to speak. And they would say, hey, Paul, would you, do you have a word for us? And they might have even called him Saul, like his, his former Jewish name. Hey, would you come? Would you share? And what he would do is he would open up the scriptures and scrolls at that time or from memory, however they did it, in each of these synagogues, and he would unpack, really, how Jesus came and fulfilled all the promises of God in the Old Testament relating to the Messiah, or the Christ. Messiah or Christ just means the anointed one of God, or we could shorthand it and say the promises of God fulfilled in a person. So Paul would go in and he would reason with them from the scriptures, conveying to them that this Jesus, this Jesus that came and lived and died and rose again, rose from the dead, that the Jews had put to death in Jerusalem, and this story it, it, it spans the countries that he's going through. This story is well known of this Jesus who came in and literally made a massive dent on culture, on the world. And then there's this Paul that is going from town to town. Now, he's already been in these towns, so they know this. And there's those followers of Jesus that have popped up in these cities. And so he's now going into the synagogues. He's opening up their Bible and showing them these are the promises of God, and they've been fulfilled in this man, Jesus. So here's his, his way of engaging the culture. And there's, there's a couple reasons behind that. One, it's what he's good at. He is a Jewish religious leader by trade, by education, who's become a follower of Jesus and has become a missionary or church planter because Jesus called him to. But his heart lies with his own people. As we follow this book out, we're really the, the story's going to center in on primarily Paul. And what we're going to see is he engages cities, and we've already seen this in like Acts 13 as well. Each city will go in, and his heart is for the Jewish community. His heart is for the Jewish people. But as we'll even see today, he has more impact in the non-Jewish community. 
So his heart is for one group of people. His strategy is for one group of people. He has some level of effectiveness with that group of people, but it also impacts others. But Paul wants to engage the cultures he enters into. And each time he does this, he goes into a culture and he addresses the culture he's in. So right now he's addressing Jewish people in a Jewish way, pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of what they're waiting for. He will do that differently when he gets to Athens. So we read that again, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on a three Sabbath days, so three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that refers to the promise of the Old Testament, to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So imagine this. Uh, imagine you're a group of people, and we, we get a lot of this today. You're a group of people waiting on promises of God. The closest tie to us today is kind of waiting for end times. There's a lot of Christians that are really set up watching for some form of events that happen in the end. Okay? Whatever the end means, however you get there, whatever you think about it, waiting on this. Okay? What if? What if someone came in and said, hey, I know you think it's going to look like this, but it's this. Right? And we're not going to unpack that today, but that's what's going on. Hey, I know you're waiting on a Savior, this Messiah, this promise of God, and you think he's coming as a powerful political and military leader. I know you think that's what God has been promising you because you hear about victoriousness and the lion of the tribe of Jew. You hear these things, but what if I told you that the suffering servant in Isaiah that will die for your sins, what if I told you that was whom God was talking about? So he's telling him, listen, I know you think it's this way, Right, and just as a, as, a, as a point of reference, there's about four major end times views. For sure, at least three of them got to be wrong, right? Right? I mean, it's just honest, right? Does that make them not Christians? No. It hasn't happened yet. I have an opinion, but I'm not going to, I wouldn't bet a whole lot on it because it hadn't happened yet, right? That's where the Jews are. They have this idea of what the Savior is supposed to look like. And they're hanging on to it for dear life. But what's happened is Jesus has come in humility. He came through poverty. He came and suffered and died and rose again because that was God's plan to overcome the gap of sin between you and I and God. So God created a humanity. He designed them to worship him. And you and I all know that we've gone astray, that we've all cho chosen to not live like God created us to and to kind of go our own way, do our own thing. The Bible just calls that sin, right? That we would choose our own way, not God's way. When we're designed to be worshipers of God, designed to bring God glory, and we choose to go another way, that, that separated us from God. So as the Jewish people are waiting for this other kind of leader, what God does is actually fulfill what he said he would. And he came in, and God became flesh, Jesus he lived a sinless life, the life you and I are called to live, but we don't. We choose not to. He died to take our place, because the penalty of sin is death. He was buried in the tomb to prove that he had satisfied the penalty for our sin, and then in victory, rose from the grave three days later. And in that victory and in that resurrection is where we get new life. And so sometimes the gospel hovers a lot around forgiveness of sin, which is incredibly important. 
but we miss the fact that Jesus gives new life too, right? And then Jesus will ascend back to heaven. He does so so that he can place his Holy Spirit in us, that we can be empowered by Jesus. Jesus says, it's better that I'm not with you, that I go away. And obviously, the only thing better than Jesus with us is Jesus in us, right? And so Jesus ascends back to heaven where he deserves to be, seated on his throne, pours out his spirit on all who believe, and he empowers us to be the church, to take this message to others. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you, you got to hear this. Sometimes people think something about what God is saying, and, and sometimes that's not accurate. Sometimes it's not always this, the way it plays out, right? In little things, and big things, it doesn't matter. Humility, good for us. And that's what's happening here. Paul is going into a synagogue and saying, I know you're waiting for this, but it just looked different, and it's happened. Some are going to adhere to this message. Some are going to hate to hear this. Here's what happens. Verse 4, and it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devoted Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So here's what happens. Some Jews believe, some Greeks believe, some men believe, some women believe, some people believe. So here's what happens when they believe. They have to, take where, they have to go from where they are, They have to change entirely. They have to start living in a new way. If you're a note taker, here it is. Next slide, please. I skipped that one. Sorry, Justine. Jews in Thessalonica leave their practice of Judaism to follow Jesus. And now everything must change. Jesus isn't just an additive to what you already do or believe. Jesus is the center of everything. Let me say this about the Greeks, too. The Greeks have to leave what they already believed, right? They have to, they have to take and, and, and begin to follow Jesus and abandon what they had believed before, whether that be a plurality of gods like we'll see in Athens today, or whether that be they were atheists or whatever it might be. They had to leave that. You can't just add Jesus, no matter who you are, to what you do. You can't just add believing in something. You can't just add doing something in response to Jesus. You have to center your life around Jesus. So this calls us to a very dramatic change, right? Many of you know my story of addiction and getting in trouble and, and, and just all those things, which is an incredible understatement there. But everything had to change. But it's not just lives like mine. It's the everyday average good person who gets up, goes to work, loves their spouse, has kids, love their kids. Everything still has to change. It has to be oriented around Jesus. So there's this shift in these people, some Jewish, some Greek, some male, some female. And we're going to see the outcome of this. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous... And taking some wicked men of the rabble and formed a mob and set the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason, one of the Christians, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So looking for Paul and for Silas, looking for these people that are coming in and are causing such a change in the culture. Now understand that what we're going to see here is that people are going to start to live and believe differently and it's going to shift the culture. Right? Just tie that today. That the Christians are countercultural in many ways. That we don't, what we believe doesn't always line up with where culture is, right? No matter how many politicians try and quote verses and kind of add them to their platform, it doesn't always work, right? There have been some stories about this this week and the news and all that. Again, you can't just add Jesus to what you already do. You have to orient everything around Jesus. And it causes change, and it will change a city, it will change a community, it will change a family. And so as this shift starts to take place in Thessalonica, the Jews say, okay, listen, they're, they're trying to change what we believe in, which is true. And so they begin to go out, and they want to find them, they want to take them and beat them and stop them. So they go to a man named Jason's house, 
and they seek to pull these men out. Here's a note for you. The religious leaders fight back to prevent losing their cultural position. Culture is often contrary to Jesus and ca causing those who follow Jesus to be caught in a conflict. <clears throat> and this isn't a statement against a specific political party or group today. Just being a Christian, I find myself in contrast to a lot of, well, to almost every political position in some senses, right? Like you'll have the position on the right here and the position on the left here, and there's problems in both of them. If you're honest as a believer, like there's problems in both sides, and you kind of look at it and go, well, this camp has tried to co-opt Jesus, and this one's tried to co-opt Christianity, and here's what we've got. And really, if we're honest, man, it, it just, it doesn't call us to either, it calls it to something different. It may tend towards one or another. But a lot of times I just find myself in conflict or my heart in conflict over some of the things that are going on. And that's what we see here. So as followers of Jesus, they're now finding themselves in a cultural conflict, in a place where the community or the culture itself is against them. And in, in this case, people are seeking to, to take that out on them. Verse 6 says this, When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So here's what happens. The community around them, the culture they're in says, listen, they're proclaiming a different message. Now, it's Jewish religious leaders who are not Roman. They're not for Caesar, Right? But they see an opening. They see, they see an opportunity here to say, listen, they're proclaiming. These followers of Jesus are proclaiming Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, that flies in the face of what Caesar says about himself, so let's use that. And so they go in, and they try and undermine the people. And then they note this. Listen, these men who have turned the world upside down, that's the kind of reputation that is spreading about Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Christianity in general, Peter and the others. These men are turning the world upside down, and they've come here. Here's the subtext. We don't want to change. We want things here to stay as they are. So here's our opening. They're calling Jesus king. They're saying this Jesus is the king. And so they go to the Roman authorities to condemn the followers of Jesus. So literally, they pull Jason out. They can't find the others. Jason literally like, gets out on bail, and they move on. But this is the start of this conflict. Verse 10. And some brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into a Jewish synagogue. So Paul and Silas escape. They go to a new city, a new town, a new area called Berea. Straight to the synagogue. Paul's still doing the same thing. He's just begun doing it now in a new city. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So there's the same approach, and that's what I want you to see. There's the same approach, but new response, right? Paul probably hasn't changed much of anything. Is that fair? Like, Paul seems to be doing the same thing. Now, he may be refining his skills. He may be in one passage in this synagogue and another passage in this synagogue. But my guess is Paul's Paul, right? When he goes in, Paul says what Paul's going to say, right? And he goes in, he proclaims a gospel, like... Uh, as I do, a kind of similar language all the time. Like, that's just who Paul is. I, I just I have a way of saying things. That's what I do. I'm sure Paul's the same. So he goes from town to town. He goes from synagogue to synagogue. He goes in there. He proclaims the same message. And here's what we need to hear. He gets a different response. 
over here in Thessalonica, they literally want to beat him up or, or imprison him or kill him or all of that. They go after others like Jason. And here in Thessalonica, it says they're just more noble than the Bereans. That they listen to him, and, and, and the conflict with what they believe is still the same. Their response is different. Again, we're, we're accountable for the message, the way we convey the message. We're accountable for what we say and how we say it. We can't always control the outcome. The Bible tells us that the Bereans are the difference here, not Paul, right? Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. There's two things that are being pointed out here. I mentioned one earlier. There is a Jewish response. There, is a, there are some Jews that come to believe. But it's highlighting two things, and you have to understand the culture to understand this. It's highlighting that a lot of Greeks are coming to faith and women are coming to faith. Right? That's what is stand out about this. Because if you're a Jew or a Greek or Roman at this point in time, right, women don't rank really high. And if you're Jewish, Greeks don't rank really high, even though they're over you in the culture. So the Jews have a tendency to try and keep their faith to their ethnic group. Right? We see that kind of in different pockets today. And they tend to have, really, only men are the ones that make this decision for their whole household. So what Acts tells us is some Jews come to faith. And then some Greeks as well, and a lot of women. And that's been said now for Thessalonica and Berea. Verse 12, many of them therefore believe with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica had learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So again, same thing, different city, but the Jews now from Thessalonica, they travel up to Berea, they, they travel into Berea to, to also now try and chase down Paul and Silas and Timothy and the, and the rest of them. And Paul and them, they, he, gets away, and he, he sails away, he goes off to Athens Timothy stays, he sends for Timothy and, his, and the people that are with him, and now they travel and we're off to Athens. But the same thing, in each town we're seeing the conflict, we're seeing different outcomes, uh, we're seeing very similar outcomes as some believe, Greeks, women, Jews, all kinds of things, men, women, all over. But we're seeing different responses, but we're also seeing that there's a culture clash here where this group of people now is not content with having this, this group of people in any setting. Really, if you're a note taker, Christ and culture. So here's the question really we want to tackle today and, and in our community groups. So Christ and culture inevitably clash. So how can we engage in the world around us, honoring Jesus and allowing him to shine through us? How can we engage in the culture to the best of our ability, knowing we can't control everyone's response, but knowing we're accountable to Jesus for the way we present the message? right? And I don't mean that you have to water it down. I don't mean any of that. I mean we're accountable for the message, right? What we say, we're accountable for. How we say it, we're also accountable for. So we're accountable to get the message right, and we're accountable to convey it in a way that honors Jesus and lets him shine through us. So how do we do that? We're going to see a little more expanded version of Paul in Athens right now. And what that's going to allow us to do is just draw out some application, draw out some things that we can look at, things that we can talk about in our community group, things that we can dig into, apply to our own lives.
So here we go, moving to Athens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, what does Paul, what does Paul see immediately when he gets there? Actual real question, not just to pause and take a drink. Idols. What does that say about this culture? Idolatry. They're polytheistic for sure, right? They have many gods, little g, not God as a title, right? Many deities, many idols, a plurality of them. Many of them worship many gods, right? Many idols. So now you, you imagine Paul as he enters into Athens, and it shows us what he sees, and it says he was provoked within him. So he is deeply convicted about what he believes and what he sees and how they clash, if you will. He was raised a Jew. He became an elite Jew, a Pharisee. He was raised with a monotheistic, one-God conviction. He is then converted to following Jesus as the fulfillment of that same God, still one God, right? And so he is, he is a one-God kind of guy, walks into the city of Athens, and he sees this, this just host of statues and idols and gods. And he walks in, he sees it, and it provokes within him. Now, provokes is a strong word, right? Like, that's not just like, hey, he notices it. It provokes something within him. Now, I, I don't know about you. I, I, maybe some of you I might know. But for me, when I'm provoked, my response isn't always that great, right? I know. You think I'm perfect. I know. Just busted your bubble. <laughs> Thanks for catching up. So uh, when I'm provoked, I don't always respond right. But here's what we got to hear. We're responsible for how we respond, right? So he sees this, and I think if I could interpret this a little bit, I'd say this. He has this kind of righteous anger that other people would be worshiping things made of stone or gold or silver. And, and, and listen, there's a bit of a, an irony in this. Like if I make something let's say out of stone or wood or gold or silver or something, if I make something, how could I ever turn around and worship that thing? Like I made it, right? Does that make sense? Like I've always been baffled by this piece of the puzzle. And I know it's very cultural when everybody around you do it, does it and you're raised to do it. I get it. I get that you do it. But at some point, doesn't somebody have to ask like, okay, I made this thing. It didn't make me, right? Like how do I worship this? And he sees this and he believes in the God who created him, created us. He believes in the God who created the air around us and the world we live in and the, the sun and the moon and the stars and everything. He believes in that God. So for him, he doesn't understand how do you make something with your hands and then bow down to it and offer, you know, sacrifice to it or whatever. How would you pray to these things that, yeah, I guess that you carved ears in them, but they don't have ears. And it just provokes something in him. And he just, I think, has this righteous or holy anger but he can't just go into Athens and be angry because he's accountable for the way he, the way he conveys the message that God has given him. There's uh, some modern examples, if you will, of people that are uh, provoked by things. That we started Generations Family Care, right? We've, we've got that other nonprofit that is now up and running. That Part of that is to rescue people, predominantly women, out of sex trafficking, women and men, but that we would rescue people out of that. And that was born out of a conviction that this goes on all around us 
and not enough people are doing anything about it. And the church needs to do something about this. We have people in here that are convicted that there are moms out there that are kind of raising a bunch of kids at home and are often just alone. And so we do things for moms. There, there's people that work with addicts and, and, and addiction and people in, in lifestyles that are just killing them. And this is born out of a provoking, if you will, a conviction. People do that out of the things that God has placed on their heart. So let me give this to you on, on the screen. So how do we do this? That's what we're asking the question. So the first thing, kind of an application thing that you can take with you, ask uh, yourself, talk about in your community groups. What has God given you a heart for and the skills to engage those around you that can lead people to Jesus? How has God uniquely created and wired you? What kind of passions and skills has God given you? Because it's, it's one thing to be passionate and not have the skill to do anything about it, right? To be fair. It's, it's, it's one thing to have a skill set and not be passionate about something. You'll probably accomplish very little, even though you're probably skilled at it. But where has God uniquely wired you? And again, as I see all you taking pictures, all these are on the app. All these are already written down there for you, if that makes it any easier. All right. We'll, they're not on the app yet. That's my fault. I forgot to email Vandy this morning, but I sent it to him right before church. So I'll own that one. All right. Never mind. Chanel, I'll go back to taking pictures. All right. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So notice how he engages. Now, this is, he didn't just go to a synagogue. Now he's out in the marketplace and he's out talking to people. And somehow he's been engaging Greek people prior, right? Because it says they're coming to faith. We saw that in Berea. We saw that before that in Thessalonica. But now he's got more of a, a kind of a, a focused strategy. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. So that's the religious. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he is pushing outside of that. But what I want you to see there is really his approach. We keep talking about that we're responsible for how we do things. So number two, our approach. When we engage those around us, we must do so with love and respect. Paul writes that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Romans says that. Right? So as he is in Rome, not far from Athens, not terribly far, he, or he's not in Rome when he writes that. When he writes to the Romans, not terribly far from Athens, he reminds them that it's the kindness of God that leads men and women to repentance, right? That it's God's love not beating them to death with, hey, you're going to hell or beating them with the Bible, right? He says, lead with this. Like, this is the thing. Like, God's love for humanity is a place where we can start. It's his approach I want you to see, right? We'll get to the other things in a minute, but I want you to see kind of how he leads. He reasons with them. He gets in there, and he does what he knows how to do. He engages the culture, and he is passionate, but he's also convicted there's a way to do this and, and probably many ways not to do it. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And he said, what does this babbler, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Epicureans are, are kind of the uh, everything in abundance. If it feels good, do it. It's that crowd. Okay? You know, half of you, right? <laughs> the Stoics are the don't do anything, right? Nothing of this world has anything good. That's the other half of you, right? No. It, it, in here, Epicurus was that just eat, drink, and be merry. Just 
If it feels good, do it. It was that good. That's where we get it is this Epicurean philosophy. So there's writers and philosophers. In the modern day setting, it's like there's books and, and speakers and, and podcasts. It's that kind of thing. There's, this is a prominent theme. The Stoics are that. They are more aesthetic. They are, they are more disciplined and, and rigid. They're more, the listen, this world is not what it's about. Everything is over here. And so as you can tell, there's some truth on both sides. Neither one of them has it all together. And clearly, they're both missing Jesus. But he goes in and he engages with them. And as he's doing that, here's what we get from that. Well, they're like, what does this babbler say? Like, I don't know if I understand him. Well, it sounds like he preaches foreign divinities. Like, we've got this thousand idols that we have. But clearly, there's some more out there. And he's talking about them. But here's what they tell us. The only thing we get to hear about the message that's not interpreted through the hearer is that he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. Now imagine you've never heard this story. Imagine you've never heard of Jesus and you hear that there's a man, because really that's all they would think. He's just, just a guy who was a preacher. Some say he healed people. And he lived, we know that. We died on a cross. That was a massive story. It kind of rippled throughout the world. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. Now imagine you're in Athens right now, and you've heard this story. Imagine how hard this is to believe. And that's what they're asking questions about. They're like, okay, the guy kind of sounds crazy. The story sounds crazy at least. But they're not offended by him. They just don't understand his message. He goes in and he proclaims that. I'm going to try to ignore that. It's totally funny. All right, so he, so he goes in and he proclaims Jesus and the resurrection. And their question really is about his message. Notice they're not put off by him. Third thing, Christ-centered gospel. Gospel preaching is not cultural war fighting. Let me just push pause. He doesn't go in and go, listen, you guys are all idolatrous, idol-worshiping, Athenian, whatever, right? He goes in and just preaches Jesus. His gospel message is about Jesus, not, not their culture. He doesn't go in and just beat up their culture. Now, I'll speak to it in a minute, but he doesn't go in that way. Gospel preaching is not cultural war fighting. It's centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't preach against the culture. We proclaim Christ. Right? How many times, and listen, I know we get trapped in this. How many times do we just fight the culture around us? Oh, this group has this agenda, or this political party says this, or these people group over here being missed, or, or whatever, Right? And oftentimes we get caught in this cultural war fighting, uh, this culture war, right? And really what we see Paul do is he walks into an abundantly idolatrous setting. He walks in and just preaches Jesus. He just proclaims this Jesus that lived, died, and rose again. And that's at the center of his message. And he does it in the streets. He does it in the synagogues. He'll use the Bible in the synagogues. He won't necessarily in the marketplace. And there's a reason for that. He's contextualizing for the Jews. He's also contextualizing for the Athenian marketplace. I don't know what all he said. We're not told. Here's what we know. He preaches Jesus. He preaches that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And they don't understand it. But here's their response. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is, a, this is Mars Hill. This is this place where the philosophers would gather, and they would just discuss and debate things. They would just, these were the thinkers. This is all they did all day long was talk philosophy and really talk different forms of thought, religious thought, political thought. They would gather, and this was kind of the brain trust of the area, if you will. And this was what they did all the time. And so they took Paul, now they invite him 
to the Areopagus. So it says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So here's what we can kind of pull out of this. Paul is preaching Jesus in the streets of Athens. Whatever he's doing, he's getting to the death and resurrection of Jesus. However he's doing that, he's engaging people. He's not repelling people. When he's in the synagogues, he's engaging those people. However he's doing this, and I, and I honestly, I kind of love that we're not told much more about what he does in the marketplace because I think we just try and replicate it all the time, right? We just try and take this some formula as if we can create God in a formula, and we would just try and reproduce all these things, but here's what we're given. We're given values that Paul does. We know what he talks about. We just don't know everything he says. And however he does this, he walks in and he proclaims one God, a God who lived and died and rose again, a God who entered into human history in the flesh. He goes in, he proclaims that, and though they think he may be crazy, they want to hear more. So they invite him up to the people that do all this thinking and all this talking about philosophy and culture and religion and arts and all these things. And they invite him in. And they respond to him fairly well. They cause strange things. But if you heard this for the first time, it'd be strange, right? Verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now just quickly, sound positive or negative to you? He's leading with a compliment. What's he complimenting? Their idolatry, right? I mean, really, that's what he's doing. He's like... You guys are super religious, right? I mean, I'm looking around, and you guys have got everything but Jesus in here. But hey, I see that you're very religious. I mean, that's a pretty innocuous way to start. At minimum, he's incredibly gracious as he engages the conversation they've invited him into. He says, for as I passed along, so you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So here's the setting in Mars Hill. Here's the setting in Athens 2,000 years ago. They are so plural, like just polytheistic and just so engaged in, a, in, a, in a, just a ton of different idols and gods that they literally have a place where there's this pillar and has nothing on it. All the other ones, all these pillars, you've got, you know, Aries over here, and you've got this, and you've got all these different gods, Diana and, and Artemis. You just, you look around, and they have all these pillars with these gods fashioned, these, these idols fashioned on top of them, and then you're walking along, and you see this one pillar sitting there, nothing on top, and the inscription says, to the unknown god. They're hedging their bet, is what they're doing. They're just kind of backstopping it, like, I, Aries, Diana, yep, yep, I think we got them all, right? But just in case... Here's this one. Here's what I love about Paul. Paul studies the culture he's in. Right? How many people on social media today weigh in on conversations they really know very little about? I know none of you would ever do that. So I'm just saying, right? Like, totally happens, right? Science debates and macroeconomics and, uh, yeah. Everybody's got an opinion. Paul goes into the community and studies the culture. I'm sure he has some exposure to it. He's a very educated man. But he goes in, he wanders around looking and trying to figure out what is it these people believe. 
And as he gets to this one, he sees an opportunity. It says to an unknown God. He says, men and women of, of Athens, listen, I, I can tell you're super religious. You even have one over there that says to an unknown God. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. How sweet is that entrance, right? Like that opening is just amazing, right? But he sees it doesn't work everywhere because you can't go, hey, so to an unknown, you say you don't know God. You're like, I never said that. Athens said that. Study the culture, sees an opening, leads with a very gracious opening, and says, now let me tell you about that one. You know how you're hedging your bet over here? Let me tell you about my God, the unknown God to you. He says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He even says, you worship this unknown thing. I'm just going to tell you about what you worship a little bit. Right? Like you're already there. I'm just going to kind of bring you along a little bit more. Let me just educate you about this unknown God that you already worship. Here's a note for you. Number four, cultural context. Understanding the world we live in is paramount to sharing Jesus in ways that relate to the here. We're called to relate to the people around us without being just like them. We're called to understand the culture without just adhering to the culture. Right? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. That's how Jesus says it. When Paul is in a synagogue, he reasons with them from Scripture. Why? Because when they go to synagogue, they open the Scripture, and they talk about the Scripture. Like, we open the Bible and talk about the Bible. So he goes in, and he uses the context of the synagogue, and he proclaims Christ from Scripture. When he goes to Athens, however... He goes in preaching the same gospel, the Jesus that lived and died and rose again, but he doesn't start with scripture because the first thing they would say, like most, many, not most, but many Americans today, when you say, like, well, the Bible says this, they're like, I don't believe in the Bible, so that doesn't really help, right? The marriage debate, we'll say the, the Bible says this about marriage, and most people go, well, I don't care what the Bible says. So he doesn't lead there. He says, listen, I see, I see you're very religious, and I see this this place for an unknown God, and he weighs in right there. He says, let me tell you about the unknown God that you already worship. Let me tell you about my God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So I've done a lot of, Paul doesn't start with this or Paul doesn't start with that, but here's where Paul starts. See, this one we get to unpack. We were told what he does in the synagogues. We're told a topic that he covered in the marketplace. But here we get some of his words. He begins with God. Your gospel should begin with God. Can I have that next slide? Thank you. The Bible proclaims a gospel that begins with God. Start with the eternal and omnipotent God of the universe, not what we see wrong in the world. There's a place to get to what we see wrong in the world, right? There's a place for that. Paul will do that here in a second. But he leads with God. He said, let me tell you about this unknown God. This God, he doesn't have a statue. He can't be made with hands, served with hands. He can't be contained in a temple like your Artemis of the Ephesians is, like this or that. This God is the one who created everything. He now leans into the God who created them, who created us, who created the world, who created the stars, who created the stone they made the idols out of. He says, let me tell you about this God. This is the eternal creator God. This is the God who without him nothing exists. His gospel begins with God. 
Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. He goes from God to creation. Here's what he does. He goes from there's a God who started and created everything, right? So let's say everything that you worship, God created. That's what he's saying. In fact, he will go on and say that in the letter to the Romans. He'll say, listen, you've traded in the worship of the creator for created things. You worship this, that God created this. And then he says this, now God created you too. So he goes from the God who created everything, the God who has no beginning and no end, right? The, the universal, omnipotent God who created everything. And he says, and then he created you. And here's where he's moving with his gospel. Now, if God created you, me, everybody, if he created us, he designed us, that means he gets to say how we live, right? Right? If you're a parent at home, who gets to decide the way your kids live? Right? I didn't say you enforce it. I said who gets to decide, right? And when they're little enough, you just lock them into that space where they can do that, right? But God created us, designed us. He, he gets to tell us how we're designed to be, how we function the best, right? That's what we're supposed to be as parents, as adults, that we're saying, hey, listen, this is how life works best. So he leads with God. He gets into man being created. And what he's doing is he is eliminating, really, the objections that most of these philosophers spend their day talking about. Well, I think we should live as if we're never going to live past tomorrow. Well, no, I think, we should, I think we should aim at eternity. I think we should do this. I think we should enjoy everything here possible. I think there's nothing here we should enjoy. I think we should aim over here. Like he's just speaking to, listen, there's a God who created all. He created you. He designed how you're going to live, and he unpacks that for us. Gospel and creation. Everyone has questions about why the world we live in is so broken. Sharing how God created the world before sin wrecked it, we paint a picture of what God desires for us today. Creation is a powerful piece of the gospel. Verse 28, for in him we live and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. He goes in and he uses Epicurean Stoic poetry. If you're reading along in your Bible, it's not just a paragraph. They break those lines out. Those are quotes, one from an Epicurean philosopher and one from a Stoic poet, or Stoic philosopher and Epicurean poet, excuse me. And he is quoting the culture back to them. And he is critiquing the culture they live in, but he's using things they understand. Now, I'm not much of a movie guy. I hear a lot of pastors use movie references. I normally miss them. If Brandon were here today and he weren't sick, he would have a movie reference for us, right? <laughs> I miss those. Paul is in there, and he has studied the culture so much to where he can say things that they get. This is the person you study. This is the person you study. That's like quoting the Quran to a Muslim. or quote, you, know, you see my point, right? Quoting... Buddhist writings to a Buddhist. He's going in, he's using what they say and saying, listen, you already believe some of these truths. Let me show you how they're fulfilled in Christ. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Straight to Jesus. Jesus as man, Jesus as God, Jesus as judge. 
And he leans into sin, repentance, and judgment. So for those of you that are listening to say, okay, well, we want to lead in a specific way. We want to begin with God or what Paul writes, the kindness of God leads a man towards repentance in Romans 2. When you hear that and you're like, oh, we're going to water down the gospel. Oh, we're going to miss the sin and the repentance and the judgment. Paul doesn't miss anything. We shouldn't miss anything either. What I'm saying is he leads in ways where they're listening. They're still listening now. They're not repelled by his message. And then he leans into a call towards repentance and even impending judgment for every human being in the future. Number seven, this is our last note. No complete gospel omits sin, repentance, and judgment. Hard topics in the context of how Christ has overcome them are powerful and necessary. Let me kind of put an, a, a caveat to this, if you will, or, or a, a little more explanation. That doesn't mean every gospel presentation must get there. Every time we talk about Jesus, we got to get to sin, repentance, and judgment. I'm not saying that. I'm saying no complete gospel. If your gospel doesn't have an understanding of sin, an understanding of repentance, and an understanding that Jesus will judge every one of us, then our gospel is missing something. To have a whole, robust gospel, you can't miss the hard topics. But here's the thing. Most people want to talk about hard topics. Most people want to know, hey, so what happens when we die? What's our purpose in being here? Like, why is there so much bad stuff that happens in the world? People want to deal with hard topics. It's can they talk to us, or whenever we talk to them, do we push them away with our words? It's not the message. Paul has a message that includes sin, repentance, and judgment. And yet they still listen to him and want to hear more. Here's what it says, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. And among them were also Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Both Athenian women and then some others. So he talks about sin, repentance, and judgment. And here's the overwhelming response. Some people mock him. Hey, you believe in this guy who rose from the dead? It's a little weird. But everybody invites him back and some believe. And I would say this, we can't change anyone. It's not how well we give the message, but I will say this, we can absolutely get in the way. Is that fair? We can be the enemy of the gospel in how we present it. Now I'll go back to, this is the Areopagus. Uh, this is Mars Hill. This is a place where people met. Today that place is often online through Twitter and through Facebook, through social media. And so people will get on and there's something I'd say empowering, but I like that word. There's something that gives people a courage to sit behind a computer and say things that they would never say face-to-face -to, -face to somebody. And they would weigh in and weigh, call names and say things and do things in such a way, and I mean Christians that do this, that we need to watch what is our message politically, socially, religiously, however, whatever you're talking about. What is our message? Is our message truly a gospel message? And if that's the case, then how are we portraying the gospel message? What, what's actually in our gospel message? Are we fighting a culture war? Are we proclaiming the Jesus that rose from the grave? And I would say these things not to ask or to critique you, but that the gospel would go forward, that the kingdom would expand, that Jesus would shine through you and through me, through all of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you.
I think this is an important message, a bit of a long one, Lord, as we work through Acts 17. But at the end of the day, the message is about how we speak to people, how we care for others, how, how we take the message that you have entrusted us with and how we take that to others. God, there's an important conversation to be had here. And I ask that you would help us as we take this and we unpack this in our families or uh, at home alone in our quiet time or in our community groups, God, as we take this message and, and we ask ourselves tough questions, I pray that you would reveal to each one of us how we can better represent you. Maybe we're not taking your message to anyone and we need to begin. Maybe we're offensive in our message and we need to be more loving. Maybe we're too loving and we never get around to sin and repentance. And we never call people to the best the way that you've designed them. God, help all of us to see how we can better represent you. Because it's all about you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.